Today, as we head into December, I'd like to take the next few weeks and uh, take a break from our, pat, our, book, our study of the book of John, and I would like to embark on a Christmas or Advent um, series and around the theme of O Come Emmanuel, I'm looking forward to what Jesus brought uh, many, all those years ago when he was born in Bethlehem, and, and what do the scriptures say about that? So I invite you today to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. That's your very typical Christmas passage, you know, Genesis 3. I think I've said this here before, you know, as pastors, you always kind of feel the pressure around Christmas because you realize there's very low percentage of the Bible that has to do with what we call Christmas passages. And you say, well, you know, you're going to do a Christmas series? I mean, I could preach the same five messages every year, you know, and maybe, maybe we would forget them from year to year. But um, at the same time, what is the scripture all about? It's about Jesus, right? Who he is and why he's come and uh, points to him. And so we're going to begin today in the book of Genesis chapter 3. And we'll look at our text today as it unfolds throughout the message. But let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Father, as we come to this time of our service where we have set aside time to study the word of God together, we ask that you would meet with us, that your Holy Spirit would use your word today in our hearts and lives, that you would convict us of our sin to appoint us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would help us as we look at this passage here in Genesis and the, the ugliness of sin that unfolds here. Help us to see the hope of the gospel that's proclaimed on these pages. And Lord, would you fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise for who Jesus is and what he has done. Today, would you convict us and show us the next step that we need to take in our lives? Uh, for one who hears this message today, Lord, perhaps that step is the initial step of obedience of placing faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They have never done that. Maybe they thought they've done that or they've faked enough people out in their lives to make others think they have, but they know in their hearts they haven't. And Lord, I pray today that you would, again, impress upon them the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ alone. For Christians here today, would you convict us of the sin that we allow into our lives, give into, that we um, sometimes defiantly hold on to, and help us to see that the only way to live a joyful and fulfilled life in Jesus Christ is to live in complete submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that your will would be done, that you would help me not to say anything that would distract from the work you'd like to do today. In your name we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but I hate waiting. Anybody else? You hate waiting? And this has always made me an excitable anticipator of Christmas. From the time I was young until today, the anticipation of Christmas is something I love. I love wrapping presents. I love shaking presents. I love listening to Christmas music at the appropriate time, okay, after Thanksgiving until Christmas. I love eating Christmas tree cakes and other Christmas goodies and looking forward to Christmas Day. In fact, if you ask my wife which kid is the hardest to control at Christmas, she would probably tell you it's her mother-in-law's kid that she struggles with the most. The anticipation of Christmas is something that many of us understand, and at some point in our lives we've probably experienced. Such anticipation, though less materialistically focused, 
is seen in the scripture leading up to Jesus' arrival. Throughout the Old Testament and leading into the New Testament, there is a desire, anticipation, and longing for the Messiah. There is hope that one day, as you read these passages of scripture in the Old Testament, there is a hope that one day Emmanuel, God with us, will come. One day, the promised one will arrive on the scene and make things right. One day, God will fulfill his greatest promise and send Jesus. One day, so many more promises of God will find their fulfillment in one man who is more than a man. He is the God-man, the deliverer, Jesus Christ. And so over the next few weeks, I want us to see from the scriptures the anticipation of Jesus in those scriptures. I want us to cry together in our hearts, Oh, come, Emmanuel, come and deliver us from sin. Come and bring us back to God. Come and make us a part of your kingdom. Today, we are looking back at Jesus' fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus has come and finished the work. At the same time, we in our own lives are looking ahead to the return of Jesus. When he will come to take his own to heaven and reign as the king of kings. And at the same time as that, we are looking to Jesus now for salvation and continued growth in him. So today, let's go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And let's go to where the need for Emmanuel first entered the timeline of man. And in this scene of darkness... Let us see the light of the gospel that shines forth from Genesis 3 and all throughout the pages of the Word of God. Let's see Jesus, the promised victor. And we see here that because Jesus is the promised victor over sin and death, I must trust him with my eternity and serve him with my life. Jesus fulfilling the promise as the one that we will see in this passage, who will crush the head of the serpent, has ramifications on our lives. It means that he is the one we must trust with our eternity. He is the only one who can bring us to God. And he, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, is due our service with our lives. But understand, you and I cannot serve God with our lives unless we have first trusted God with our lives. So many go through life thinking, well, I'll serve God, I'll serve God, I'll do this. And what they're trying to do is get God on their side. The only way to God is through Jesus. And the only way to serve God is through the power of God that he gives to his children. So let's look today at this passage and and understand what is the promise that's made here from the very beginning in the fall of mankind in Genesis 3 that rings all throughout the pages of Scripture. And really, I think to understand that, we need to go back even further. You say, well, you can't go much further than Genesis 3. I know, okay? We need to go back just a little bit further than where we are in Genesis 3 to understand kind of the scene that is set before us here in this passage. And what you you would see in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, first of all, you would see God's creation. At the beginning of this passage today, Everything is great. In fact, it's better than great. It's perfect. Because for the first two chapters of Scripture, everything is this way. In six days, God created everything from nothing simply by speaking. He created light 
the sun, the moon, and stars. He set the courses of galaxies and created this planet we call Earth. Here, he set the boundaries of the waters. He brought forth plants, filled the sky, sea, and land with animals. Where once there was darkness, now there was an incredible universe. And on this planet we call Earth, God prepared a place for the pinnacle of his creation. Because lastly, God created mankind. He did not speak man into existence, but but personally formed man and woman created in the image of God. And unlike any other part of his creation, mankind was given an eternal soul. You see, God created man with the ability, desire, and need to have communion with the creator. God created you to have a relationship with him. That's part of his image in us. And when God's creative work came to an end, we read in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God is perfect. And so therefore, it, it stands to reason that everything he creates is perfect. Imagine this scene at the end of Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. The animals existed in harmony. The earth did not fight back against man. And Adam and Eve, the first humans, existed in perfect communion and harmony both with one another and with God. Imagine that if you would. That we're not just talking about that, that there was no sin. I mean, that is what we're talking about. But understand the ramifications of that. Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you and your spouse, you got in an argument this past week, right? Or a disagreement, okay? Not even that's going on in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because of the perfect world that God has created. There is no sin that divides them. And as long as God's standard is upheld, sin does not reign in this creation. So the second thing we need to see is not only God's creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but also God's standard that he set forth. You see, God was, or sorry, man was created in God's image. We are told that in the creation account. And though perhaps there is a physical component, as some theologians have postulated throughout the years, the main component, when it says that man was created in the image of God, the main component that you and I, as we are made in God's image, is a spiritual component. That is, we were created as eternal beings. See, you and I, we're going to live somewhere forever. We are created with a desire for God, our creator, and the ability to commune with him. We are created with a free will to choose this relationship with him as he extends this grace towards us. You understand that, that God did not pre-program man to only ever do what God told him to do. Instead, God gave, the man, gave man the ability to continue to choose this relationship with him And this sovereign choice of God to do this, by the way, perhaps it's something that makes you scratch your head and you don't understand. Because if you know where Genesis chapter 3 is going, maybe you've asked questions like, why did God do that? I mean, why would God do that when he knew that man would choose to do this? But this is the way God is in his sovereign, infinite wisdom. Now, I'm here to tell you, I, I can't tell you all the reasons why God did that. 
other than the fact that he is a sovereign, good God who is full of love and grace. And he does that which pleases him. And in the same way, as God does that which pleases him as the sovereign God, he has given man the opportunity and the ability to make the same sort of choices in his life. And to inform that choice, God gave a standard. You see, God put Adam in the place we know as the Garden of Eden that he created for him. And this is what he said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. This is the standard God set forth. This is the law that God set forth. That God gave man everything he needed. The Garden of Eden was a beautiful, bountiful place. It gave man work to do as part of his created purpose. Everywhere he looked, mankind was surrounded by the goodness of God. And within that garden, man had freedom to exercise his dominion over the earth, but even that freedom had boundaries and limitations. In that garden, there was one tree that was off limits, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from this tree, man was not to eat. You understand that in the present state of man and woman in Genesis chapter 2, leading in Genesis chapter 3, mankind did not know good and evil because he was created perfect in God's image. He has no experience with evil. Should he disobey God, he would then know good and evil by this firsthand experience. And as is always the case, disobedience to God brings consequences. Disobedience to God constitutes what we call sin, and sin is always met with consequences from a holy, just God. Consequences exist to remind us our God is holy and we owe him our obedience. So God promised Adam that if you disobey, there are dire consequences. And so life in the Garden of Eden continued on with Adam and Eve dwelling in perfect harmony with one another, the creation, and God. And then you turn the page, and you get to Genesis chapter 3, and everything changes. And so that's where we pick up here today. We pick up with the serpent in the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3. See, first of all, Satan's presence there in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, that the Lord God had made. Sometime in the past, before the events of Scripture unfold in Genesis chapter 1, or something awful happened. There was a rebellion within the heavenly ranks, and one, once one of God's created angels, Satan, rebelled against God, turning to evil. He, along with those who followed him, were cast from heaven, and Satan became the enemy of God and will be so forever. And he hates and attacks the work of God. And though he is not all-powerful and will in the end find nothing but ultimate defeat, Satan continues to seek to undermine God's work. And something you and I must understand is Satan is not a little man in a red suit with horns. Satan is a real powerful being. 
And he opposes God at every chance he gets. And in Genesis 3, we see here Satan infiltrating God's creation. Now we read in Genesis 3.1 about the serpent, who is a being, that an a, a, a animal that, that God had made. He was cra- more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And it is the serpent's form that Satan assumes for his attack on Eve. And it's interesting, he disguises himself in a form that is to Eve non-threatening. I mean, have you ever thought about if you saw a serpent, which we know is a snake, talking to you, how you would feel about that? I don't know, but you, I don't like snakes to begin with, okay? <clears throat> and now you got one talking, right? But we understand then there must have been something about the creation there that was, that was different. Besides the fact there is no sin, so there's nothing to be afraid of. And here is Satan assuming this form of something that, is, that Eve doesn't see as out of the ordinary. And as Satan approaches Eve on this day, we see the weapons of his warfare against God, he begins to unfold. Look at the second part of verse 1 all the way into verse 5 and see the weapons that Satan uses. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan, inhabiting the form of the serpent, holds here a conversation with Eve. He, he wishes to see the perfect creation of God destroyed. And I want you to notice here, Satan does not engage in all-out open warfare. He engages in subtle attacks against God and his goodness. And I want to point out here what I would call four different ways that Satan attacks Eve. Now, I believe that that you could probably lump all of these under the first category, which is the first thing that Satan engages in is lying. And probably if you wanted to, you could say, well, they're all lies. Yes, but I want to point out some subtle differences in how Satan uses those here today. So the first thing that Satan engages in is is lying. I mean, the very first words we see from Satan's interaction with mankind are a lie. What does he do? He asks Eve if God really said she couldn't what? Eat of any tree in the Garden of Eden. Now, I just read you God's command a few minutes ago. Did God say they couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? No. He said you can eat of all the trees save one tree. He opened access to the garden for everything except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Satan wishes to get inside the mind and the heart of Eve, causing her to doubt God. And the way that he causes her to do this is through lies. We understand that the scriptures tell us Satan is a liar and the father of lies. What he is here in the beginning, he always has been and always will be. He will sell you a bill of goods, coaxing you to believe innumerable lies if you let him. And their lies, and these lies do not always have to be believed to accomplish their purpose and mission. Because if Satan can get you to doubt God, he sees it as a whim. If Satan can plant seeds of disobedience in your heart through his lies, he is quite content to do so. And Eve, for her part here, mildly rebukes and refutes Satan's statement. She corrects what Satan says to her, but it has an interesting twist. Did you catch that? 
She states that they should not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but furthermore, they should not touch that tree. You say, well, I didn't read that in God's thing. No, it's not what God told them. And we don't know why it is. Eve said it this way. Perhaps it was hers and Adam's own attempt to avoid that altogether. They said, you know, we're just not even going to go near that. But Satan is, so not, is not so easily deterred. He is determined to cause a rift. And so he makes a promise of his own. And that's the second thing I want to point out to you here in these lies. Satan makes a, makes a false promise to Eve. That's what Satan engages in, false promises. He assures Eve what? That she will not die. Now, God had been very clear about the consequences of disobedience. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And that's what Eve says here. We we don't go near it. We don't touch it lest we die. And and Satan says in verse 4, you will not surely die. Satan is promising her something different. What is he promising her? He's promising her sin without consequences. He's seeking to deny the veracity of God's word with promises of his own. He promises her true freedom to do what you want. And again, I would contend with you that these methods have not changed, have they? Satan promises you the same thing today. He tells you you can have what you want, when you want it, And nothing will stand in your way, and nothing bad will come out of what you do. He wants you to believe that you can do what you want, go where you wish, give in to any desire and whim you have, all in the name of enjoyment and dominion of the earth. And the rules of engagement don't apply to you. The consequences that that person had, you won't have to worry about. And if I can say it this way, Satan writes checks he never intends to cash. For our younger audience, checks are things you used to have in a book, okay? And you would write them, and the bank would cash them. Satan says, this is what's going to happen. He never intends to keep that promise, because he can't. He is a liar. It's part of his nature of sin. And as he continues to engage with Eve here, we see the third weapon that comes out. Satan now attacks the character of God. He says in verse 5, But for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What does he do in this verse? Well, first of all, he attacks the character of God. He tells them, hey, God's holding out on you. He claims to be telling her something God doesn't want her to know. See, what God doesn't want you to know is that the day you eat of it, you're going to know good and evil. You're going to be just like him. So he promises her here what? God-like knowledge, which God, their benevolent creator, seems to think they shouldn't have. Satan claims that God doesn't want any equals. Therefore, he has limited Adam and Eve's freedom. And God's laws are pictured by Satan as awful and evil things. I should say God's law is pictured, right? There's only one. Don't eat of the tree. And Satan says, that's a horrible thing. That's a bad deal you've got there. And again, Satan uses this tactic in our lives today. He twists the truth to make you believe that God is not good. 
He seeks to make God your enemy. And this is truly the work of one who hates God. And so many people look at the word of God and say so many things like, I can't believe God would say do this and don't do this and that. And they begin to believe that the laws of God are bad things. God set forth the law to Adam and Eve. Why? So they would not die. They would not be separated from him. And now Satan has begun to say, look, what God has said, it's a, it's a bad thing. And now lastly, what's he going to do here? He's going to just tell one side of the story. He promises Eve that she's going to gain something out of this. She, he says here, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen, if you'll do this, God doesn't love you anyway. God is lying to you. God can't be trusted. And if you will do this, here's what you're going to get out of this. And notice here, you know, he says, you will, you will know good and evil. He never one time tells Eve what she will lose in disobeying God. Satan is a master at covering up the truth and the parts of sin that would deter us if we truly understood it. He will promise us enticing rewards conveniently hiding the knife of pain and punishment. And I cannot tell you how many times I as a pastor have talked to people and they're they're struggling with something in their lives and they say, I wish I had never done fill in the blank. Because if I knew now what I knew then, this is the way Satan attacks our lives. He says, this is what you'll get. But he never tells us what we're going to lose in the process. And now, Eve has has stood and listened to Satan's words. She has heard the lies, but she also knows the truth of what God has said. And so before her is a decision. And we see in verses 6 and 7 the sin that takes place. Look at the action that takes place in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took up its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. When Eve looked at the tree now, she saw it in a different light. She saw its good fruit. She saw its appealing shape and color. It was truly something to behold. She now, and now she saw something that she had not seen before. She sees within it that which, which she wants most, fulfillment and wisdom. This is what God has held back from her and Adam. That's what she sees. And in that moment, she has decided that God cannot be trusted. In this moment, she is determining what is good and not listening to what God has said. The the scriptures tell us here that it is desirable or or it is, is to be desired to make one wise. It's an interesting thing. That Hebrew word is the same word that's used later in God's commandments as a prohibition against covetousness. It's the same sort of desire. And here, the serpent has given her, in her mind, the serpent has given her the truth. And so what does she do? She disobeys God. She eats of the fruit believing the lie. But it doesn't stop there, right? Because now who else eats? 
Adam. An interesting phrase, he was with her. We don't know what that means. Does that mean he was there the whole time? Does that mean he was somewhere else? We don't know exactly what that means. We do know this. Adam made his own choice to disobey God. Adam is not tricked or excused. He made a willful choice also to sin. And suddenly, everything changes. Because we not only see the action that takes place, but we see the aftermath immediately following in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You know, I think here in verse 7, the scene that unfolds is all too familiar. Because you have probably, I can almost guarantee you felt the same thing in your life. You believe that a certain sin will make you feel better, will bring release, relief, and even joy to your life. But once you commit that sin, you come to a horrible, horrible realization that it didn't live up to the hype. Suddenly, Adam and Eve are changed. What happens here in verse 7? What happens is their spiritual perfect selves die and they experience separation from God because of sin. Now, it is interesting, in a way, you know, they could think, well, Satan didn't lie to us, right? The serpent didn't lie, because what, what didn't happen? They didn't fall over and keel over on the, on the spot, right? You ever read this passage? I mean, they didn't die. But in reality, what they're experiencing is so much worse. They have lost their right relationship with God. They did die spiritually. And one day, Now, they would physically die. And with their innocence gone in sin, they recognize their own nakedness and seek to cover themselves. What what is the scripture talking about here? It's talking about an outward action and a sign of what has occurred inwardly. You see, before sin, there is no shame. There is no guilt. There is no, and now they're ashamed of who they are because they have sinned. And so outwardly, they take up covering, and it's a sign of what's going on in their hearts. And now they face the consequences that God has set forth, but they face them unwillingly. And in in verses 8 through 13, we see the strife that takes place between God and man. Look at the shame in verses 8 through 10 in the lives of Adam and Eve. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We see the shame in these verses as God enters the garden. And Adam and Eve here want nothing to do with God. Why? Because of the shame of sin. Sin does not stand up against the holiness of God. Because God is holy, we know that we justly stand before him condemned because of our sin. Adam and Eve, therefore, seek to hide from the presence of God. They do not run to God, but run away from him. They are afraid of God. And this is yet another consequence of sin. Sin fills us with fear because we cannot stand before a holy God. And notice here, what did, 
what did Satan promise Eve? You would be like. So if you're really like God, why are you afraid of God? They're not like God. They're not with God. They cower in fear because of their sin. But notice, God in his goodness and his grace gives them an opportunity to come to him. What does God do? He calls to them. Because God doesn't know where they are. No, he's God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Why does God seek them, calling to them? Seeking their confession of what has happened. He wishes the restoration of a relationship with his creation. As always, God in his grace extends this open door to his creation. Adam replies to God, and what does he do? He voices his shame. He, he, he is feeling the effects of the fall of sin, causing him to run from God. And now... The process of indictment over sin begins, and it's not as clean as we would hope to see here, because not only do you see the shame that unfolds in the verses, but now look at the slander that comes out in verses 11 through 13. He, that's God, said, who told you that you were naked, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Once again, God seeks the confession of man for what is wrong. He doesn't ask Adam, did you eat of the tree? Because he doesn't know. He asks Adam, did you eat of the tree? To give an opportunity to confess his sin. And in sin, Adam goes all in on slander and blame shifting, doesn't he? He pushes it off on the woman. And notice in, verse, in that verse there, in verse 11, who is he ultimately, or verse 12, who is he ultimately pushing this off on? He's pushing it off on God. You see that? The woman who you gave to be with me. God, this isn't my fault. This is you who've done this. The help me that God made just for Adam Gave him the fruit, therefore he ate. I mean, what else was he going to do, he says. The woman is also, Eve, she's also held accountable before God. And once again, what does she do? She shifts the blame. Now, that's, that's part of sin nature, right? I also, by the way, don't give Adam a pass. He just showed Eve how to do that, right? The serpent deceived her. That's why she did what she did. And this is a classic avoidance of admission of sin and wrongdoing. We do not like to own up to our actions and sin. Instead, we seek excuses and outs. That is the nature of sinful human beings. And we look at it, and we're really good at it, good at pointing it out in other people and in our kids, right? I mean, kids and politicians are like the best at this, aren't they? Well, I mean, it's not my fault, somebody else. But we do the same thing in our own lives. We do it to other people. We do it to God. So it's not my fault. I didn't do this. It's the way I am. And on and on and on we go. But the long and short of it is we have sinned. We have done wrong before a holy and just God. 
God's holiness and his authority have been attacked here in Genesis chapter 3. And now God is going to mete out appropriate justice on Sem. But what I point out to you today is that in the middle of this justice, there is great hope. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not going to finish the entire passage today. I'm going to stop at verse 15. There is more to this passage. But for our purposes and our application today, I want you to see what God says in verses 14 and 15. Because what he points us to here is the Savior. Notice the consequences that come in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here in verse 14, the consequences begin to flow. And the consequences are many. As I said just a minute ago, they continue on even after verse 15 where we're going to stop today. But something we need to understand Sin always has consequences. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences of your sin. Satan chose to rebel against God. He chose to deceive mankind. He chose to attack God's creation. Therefore, he pays the price. And the serpent, the vessel for Satan in this account, he also suffers for this. He crawls on his belly eating dust the rest of his life. This speaks of a personal humiliation that he will experience. Satan would experience shame for his actions. The serpent, Satan's tool, experiences this punishment. And again, this is no different than it is today. If you read the scriptures, you understand that hell and the lake of fire were created for Satan and his demons who have rebelled against God. But those who will willingly reject God and serve Satan, guess where they will spend eternity? In the same place. Because those who are instruments and vessels of Satan suffer the same punishment. But in the midst of this, notice verse 15, we have the deliverer that is promised. The deliverance that would one day come. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Can we just admit that this chapter is a really big mess? Do you feel that in your soul? I always do when I read this. Like It's just falling apart. I mean, for two chapters, it's been so great. It seems like there's nothing encouraging here what we've read. It's an ugly picture because sin is ugly. And perhaps a chapter like this even stirs up horrible feelings and emotions in our own hearts and souls because we are convicted how we, like Ab and Eve, believe the lies of Satan and disobey God. We are discouraged to see the perfect creation of God crash down, tainted by sin. Sin's consequences are felt within us as we read this chapter. Yet our message today ends on a note of glorious hope. For though there is great darkness and sorrow in this chapter, there is an incredible promise that is made right here in verse 15. God says that for years to come, a rift will open between the descendants of man and the descendants of the serpent. What is he saying here? What he's saying is there is enmity between those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. There is a war that rages from this day forth between what is right and what is wrong. And one day, God says, 
that enmity will come to a head and there will be an exchanging of blows. God promises the serpent deal a blow to the heel of the offspring of the woman. But he also promises that the offspring of man would crush the head of the serpent. And I think the winner of that confrontation is pretty obvious. And here, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in what may be the darkest, one of the darkest chapters of Scripture, the light of the gospel shines forth in the first mention of the gospel. If you want to take home a big word to use at your lunch table today, the word is proto-evangelium, okay? You can look it up on Google to spell it, okay? What does it mean? First mention of the gospel. That's what this passage is. It's an important passage for the gospel because at the very beginning of sin and infesting mankind, God promises a Savior. It is the first time the good news of Jesus is referenced in the scriptures. Because you see, the offspring of the woman that is mentioned here is none other than Jesus. That one day he would come in order to fulfill this promise. He would come to earth fully God and fully man. He, Emmanuel, God with us, would live a perfect life. And at the cross, he would experience the blow of the serpent. Satan would claim seeming victory over God, killing Jesus, God's son, but that victory would find no real traction. Because three days later, he would rise from the dead, crushing the head of the serpent, Satan. Jesus has come, and there is life in him. Jesus has come, and there is hope in him. Jesus has come, and there is victory in him. And here, there is glorious light amidst the darkness. And all throughout the scriptures, leading up to Jesus, you begin at Genesis 1 and read all the way to the Gospels when Jesus arrives. There is, there is a theme woven throughout those passages. The deliverer is coming. And all throughout the scriptures, after Jesus is born, is woven this theme. The deliverer has come. His name is Jesus. The victor has come, he has risen, and he offers you eternal life. And so today, let us trust Jesus for eternal life. Today, let us recognize our problem of sin. Today, let us turn away from self-trust and trust in him alone. Today, let Christians rejoice in Jesus and in his victorious death and resurrection. The work is done, the victory is won, and we can rejoice. Because Jesus is the promised victor over sin and death, I must trust him with my eternity and serve him with my life. Jesus came to earth as the promised victor, beginning right here at the fall of man. God pointed his people to the message of the Savior. The consequences of sin are numerous. Sinful people, a fallen world, spiritual warfare, death, brokenness, and separation from God are just a few of the things brought on by Adam and Eve's sin in this passage. You and I live in a world plagued by sin because of what we read here. At the same time, we saw the glorious light of the gospel shining forth out of the darkness. While night is falling on mankind, the light is shining forth from God's promise. One day, God said, the serpent would be defeated. One day, 
the head of the serpent would be crushed. One day, there would be a victor. And on the day Jesus was born, the heavenly host sang his praises. Jesus is the deliverer. He is the one promised to crush the serpent's head, and he did just that. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus destroyed the power of Satan and his death and resurrection. And one day, he will destroy Satan once and for all. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When God establishes his eternal kingdom, Satan will be no more. God's ultimate victory is coming secured and won through Christ. So what is the realization we need to have today? Today we must come to this, come face to face with this. You and I are born sinners. We are born with a problem in our lives, and that is sin. What Adam and Eve introduced that day still separates you from God, and you need to understand this, that in your natural state, you are Satan's instrument, and thus you share in Satan's end. No one is born into this world on their way to heaven. We have to understand that truth. No one is born in this world and they're neutral towards the things of God. So don't tell ourselves lies that say, well, if I do that, I'll go to hell. You were born going to hell. That's some Christmas cheer for you. But I got better news than that. There is a Savior who is born lived, died, and rose again so you can go to heaven. And we must place personal faith and trust in his finished work. That is the promise that God made in the Garden of Eden. The only way to heaven, personal acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior, he is the only hope of victory. As we enter this Christmas season, Let us celebrate the promised victor, Jesus Christ. He has won the battle and calls us to himself. In Christ, we can live for his glory, secure in our eternity. In Christ, we can look ahead to the day that Emmanuel will return again and we will be with him. And if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, that is the promise to you, that he's coming again and you'll be with him. I don't know about you, I was just talking to my mom yesterday, and she said, I just want the Lord to come back every day. And if you know Jesus Christ, that should be your heart's cry, that he would return. But while he hasn't returned, it is the job of believers to continue to share the message of the gospel, to continue to to reach out to a dark world, because there are still those who have opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ as he calls to them today. He calls to you. You who do not know him, who have thought yourself good enough or maybe not bad enough to go to hell, he calls to you to trust in him. Christian, he calls to you to serve him with your life, to set aside that which has has beset you in life, which you have given into time and again, 
to be a better servant of him. And you can do that with the power and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the day you've given us to be in your house. Thank you for the message of the gospel that we see shining forth even from one of the darkest places of scripture we, can, we look at. Thank you that in the beginning you had a plan to redeem men unto yourself. And Lord, we ask that today you would convict us of sin. And you would point us to the Savior. Lord, for one who still doesn't know Jesus Christ, do not give them rest, but in your grace, convict them. Show them their eternity. Show them the hope of Jesus Christ. Draw them to yourself. Lord, for Christians, let us not grow complacent, weary in the things of this life, Lord, show us the gospel each and every day. Show us the goodness of God. Show us the calling of God on our lives to serve you in your power and strength. May our lives be used for the kingdom and glory of God through you. Be with us now as we close our service. We ask that you would continue to do your work in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.